Hi, my name is Londe Yusuf. And my name is Reggie Williams. And we're the co-founders of Black Film Space. Black Film Space is a grassroots organization dedicated to enhancing the skill sets of black filmmakers and building a community of creatives. We host events such as screenwriting workshops, panels, mixers, and other events that are designed to support black content creators. In the next episode of the Black Film Space podcast, we interview Tiffany Young, Senior Vice President at Rock Shrimp Productions. Tiffany has years of experience as a production coordinator, production manager, line producer, and executive in charge at various production companies and TV shows. We talk with Tiffany about starting and running a production company, how she navigated the industry as a black woman, taking responsibility as a leader, and much more. And now, on to our interview. All right, Tiffany, thank you for joining us on the Black Film Space podcast. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm happy to be here. Of course, of course. Uh, We're really excited for this interview because we want to learn a lot about what it's like to run and start a production company. So we're really excited to, to dive in. Can you explain to us what your journey was to becoming an executive in charge at Rock Shrimp? I am. I'm now currently the senior vice president of production at Rock Shrimp. I started out as a production coordinator working at Lifetime on the network side. I did that for about two years, realized that I did not like the corporate structure of networks. And I also did not like having a direct impact on the shows themselves. So I started looking around, I found resources like Mandy.com back then was the biggest resource of production jobs. And um, I started interviewing. Interestingly, when I started interviewing, I got told a lot on the production side that was overqualified because I have a bachelor's in visual media in Spanish and I have a master's in production management. The master's in production management is very, was very new at the time. People weren't aware of exactly what that means. Really what it does is it taught me the business side of producing. So, um, you know, everything that happens in front of the camera is all great, but at the end of the day, TV, um, film, everything, production companies are businesses that have to make money. So I learned the legal side of the business. I learned the ins and outs of creating the budgets, how to get distribution deals. I learned just the whole business side. And at the time that I was entering the field, which was around 2003, 2004, it was still very much an industry where you didn't even have to have a degree to to enter. Um, You just needed experience. Experience was more valued than education. So when I came in, um, especially a black woman sitting down telling you have a master's, people did not know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was told a lot before I could even complete the interview. I was told a lot that um, I was overqualified. So what I ended up doing was I went home. I was like, all right. I mean, I hate that I have to hide my accomplishments, but I took my master's degree off my resume. Mm. And that's when I started getting more callbacks. And that's when I finally was able to get through a complete interview. And if the vibe felt right, I would tell them about my master's during the interview. Um, and the first company that gave me a break was BBC for the show What Not to Wear. And I did end up telling them about my degree in it. And I kind of started to get a little bit of that, that feedback from them about how I might be overqualified. At that point, I was so tired of trying that I just said to them, like, listen, I just need someone to give me a chance. I know I can do the job, but I can't prove it. I can't get on my resume until someone gives me a chance. 
if you give me that chance, I promise you, you will not regret it. Thankfully, they like my boldness and they're just like, all right, let's give you a chance. So um, by, you know, things move quickly in, in um, freelance. So by the end of that week or so, I had an offer for, um, for what not to wear. The challenge for me at that point was I, I was at Lifetime. That was a staff job. I had health insurance. I had um, transit. I had a 401k. I had everything. I had benefits. I had paid time off. And the what not to wear contract was a six-week freelance gig with no benefits, nothing. And although it was definitely paying way more than my network job, the loss of security was a tough one. But I think I was like mid-20s, like 24, 25 at the time. And I told my mom about it. And my mom was like, look, I'm still working. I haven't retired yet. Um, not that I'm looking to pay your rent, but if if you're gonna need financial support from me, now is the time to do it while I'm still working and I'm not retired. So go for it. She's like, you're young, you don't have any kids, you don't have any real responsibilities, you have minimal debt, so take it. You know, it's either you chase your dream now or you never chase it. And I did, so I left a two year job that I was at that had potential for growth, that had this the job security, and I went into the freelance world with a six week gig. You know, as everyone tells you, um, just do your best and your name speaks for you. And I went in there determined to uh, prove, that, prove to them that they would not regret hiring me. I became one of the top coordinators at the job. And um, I went in there with a six week contract and I ended up being there for two years with, um, they liked me so much. They kept me around between seasons. They always found work for me. They gave me health insurance. They gave me a 401k. They ended mm. up giving me everything eventually that I left behind at Lifetime. BBC ended up giving me. And when I left, I left on my own terms for a higher position in production, not because they wanted um, me to leave or anything like that. I went over to Optimum Productions and I was working as a production manager um, I had a lot of struggles there, uh, which Londe knows because she was there with me at Optimum for some time. Um, it was very challenging. Um, my coordinator there at the time was older than me, and she was there on the show. Pretty much, I got pulled up to work on a show that was failing. When I got there, it was, the ship was sinking. It was more than $50,000 over budget, and it was a uh, History Channel project, I think. And so for a project for History Channel at that time, $50,000 was a huge overage. And, um, and they were just burning money and they weren't able to complete the shows or deliver anything. So the longer they kept working, the bigger the overage was going to be. And here I was, my first PM job. At the time, also, production managing was more than more like line producing it's not what the, the production manager role is right now. So I went from being a coordinator to now being pretty much the responsibility of a line producer. And um, for my first assignment in this world, um, at this level, I am now tasked with saving a sinking ship. Mm. And my coordinator who was older than me and had been on the project from the start felt that she was better suited to save the ship than I was. And she made no secret of that. She gave me the hardest time. She literally told me that I should not be there. It should be her job. Um, and, you know, I've, I've learned that because of who I am and the way that I look versus the way she looked, that I have to take the higher road. And I simply said to her, if you should have had this job, you would have it. So 
but I'm here and I'm going to do my job and that's it. If you don't like it, you're welcome to do what you need to do for yourself, but I'm going to do this job. She didn't like that, of course. She felt that I should have been intimidated by it and she stirred up some drama. But anyway, long story short, thankfully I got through that. Um, the experience that I gained in doing a show that was thinking as my first show was, uh, was amazing. Honestly, like I feel like God was just ordering my steps because typically you would think that you want to start with a show that has a clean slate or that's doing well. But your problem solving is much more needed on a ship that's sinking. Mm -hmm. And I got thrown in there. Um, it boosted my confidence because when I got there, no one wanted me there. No one felt like, um, and I was definitely dealing with age discrimination, probably race, whether people would admit it or not. I'm sure there was some race discrimination um, going on there too. But people didn't want me there. They felt like, how could you possibly know how to fix this? And even people from the top, that hired me. So I had to come up with new documents, new spreadsheets. I had to strategize like I had never strategized before. Every element of my degree that I had learned how to run a production, I was using it because I was just strategizing like never before. And I, um, long story short, I pulled the show back to a place where they had said to us, look, we'll give you this to finish the show. That's all we got. Can you finish the show and give it to us? And when they first presented the number, based on where we were with overages, it seemed completely unrealistic. But I re-strategized, I renegotiated the deals, I found a savings where no one expected savings, and I brought us within, with under, slightly under the number that they gave us to complete the show. So at the end of the day, um, everyone loved me. The, the people who were just like, she shouldn't be here were just like, don't let her go. Like mm -hmm. that was the response after that. Mm -hmm. And again, at the time that I left that company was also because I got a, another opportunity, not because anyone wanted me to go. But I was fortunate in my first few years of being freelance, of working for six years straight um, with companies who don't typically pay people for their time off, offering to pay me for my time off just because of my my work ethic and what they felt I brought to the company. So I worked for six years straight with no break between contracts, going from one company to the next and having all of my vacations as paid time off, um, which I was very proud to do. Um, That's unheard of in like reality freelance world. It, it was, it was def definitely a blessing. Um, and just a testament to like, if you really do put your all into it and let your work speak for you, then you will, you'll definitely be able to soar in this business. But the thing is you gotta, you have to be at the top of your game and be on top of everything. And you have to prove your value. You saying that you're valuable is not enough. You have to show people, especially me being on more of the business side of TV, me showing their value, then uh, my value is putting money in their pocket. Essentially, that's what it is. It's bringing shows in under budget, finding savings, and just keeping helping the company keep their door open. So I would say from there, next, I went on to a company um, that was way more challenging than Optimum. And I stepped into the role of line producer. Um, but really, I was a whole lot more than that. There was no head of production or EIC. There was no production accountant. <laughs> there was um, literally no one there from the business side. So I created everything from the ground up for them. They had no proper way of doing expense reports, um, no cost reporting, no tracking, nothing. And I built everything from the ground up. Again, at this point, I'm still in my 20s. I think I was like 
27, maybe 27, maybe 28. And I had reached the title of line producer, although my title should have been way higher at that company. There was a point where we had like five shows going in production. Plus we had a ton of development coming in and I wasn't even allowed to hire a line producer for every show. So I was EICing because I was the one writing the budgets and negotiating them with the networks. I was line producing because we didn't have a line producer. I was the accountant because we didn't have a production accountant. I was legal because we had an attorney, but they were West Coast and a lot of the out times that we needed them, they weren't available just because of the time difference. I was everything. I was payroll master. Um, and Londe knows me during this time too. That was the time of my life that I did not sleep. I was working from like 10 a.m. till 10 p.m. every night. Um, it was hard. When I look back at it, I don't know if I ever could do that again. Um, I was also very underappreciated by the company, the owners. Um, it was a very male-dominated company, and I was the only person of color in a high position there. Every All the other people of color were either... PAs or interns and they didn't know what to do with me. They just didn't know how to interact with me or whatever. So there was a lot of challenges there. But of course they I was able to keep my job because I was getting the job done. Whether or not people know how to interact with you, whether or not people are comfortable with you, the one thing they can't challenge is if you're getting the job done. And I was getting the job done, so I was able to um, keep working with them. And at the end of the day, when I left there, um, the best thing again that came out of that was all the experience that I gained wearing all of those hats. Thankfully, I've never, even as an SVP, I don't have to wear that many hats again. Thankfully, I'm at a company that we're properly staffed with all the positions. But um, knowing how to do those jobs helps me strategize in the way that I strategize now in a very successful way. It helps me communicate with the various departments better. Um, and it just makes things smoother and, and uh, my decisions are more effective because I understand all the workings of the, the management side of production. Um, so from there, I just went into freelancing and hopping around the companies as a line producer. That was like as a line producer, that was a very um, instrumental time again in my career because at this point I knew how to do things, but I knew how I was doing them at that last company. This next step of me bouncing around from job to job, and it ended my six years straight of working. Then I actually did go through a period of like. Uh, literally one year I made like half the income of I made the previous year because it was a tough year for reality TV. There weren't that many gigs out there and I just wasn't working as much. Um, so I really truly felt freelance at that point. Also, the higher up you get, the less jobs there are available to you. So it just was the nature of the business where I was working less jobs. But, and it felt harder it felt a little depressing at times but the knowledge that i gained of being able to see how other companies are doing the work um made me much better prepared for when i finally landed my first job as an eic um how i got to being an eic is that i went to a company where um the vp of production there 
she was looking for a line producer who knew how to do a little bit more than line producing. They didn't quite have the budget to hire her number two, like I had a production under the VP. Um, so I had to line produce shows also, but her, her workflow was overran with, um, she was overwhelmed with trying to write budgets and also get them through the networks and negotiate while still just dealing with all the other stuff of a production company. So I came in as, um, more of a senior level line producer for her where I can oversee shows, but then take on some of her workload. And in doing that, one of the net, one of the shows that I was over was a network that they had never worked with before. And the network's process for course reporting and stuff like that was slightly different than other networks. But I had fortunately worked with this network before. So I brought value to the table. I was able to tell her how you do things differently um, how you submit their reports, how you prepare the documents for this network. Um, and she was very appreciative. Thankfully, she was not a boss at all. Some you can you can encounter some bosses that are haters that are upset that you know a little bit more about something than they do, but she was not that way at all. She wanted me there to help her and help her do her job. So when um when she realized that there was something that I knew that she didn't, she was like, all right. I don't even need to be in this. You sit with accounting, you develop the plan and how we're going to do this. When you guys have it together, you come back to me and you present it to me and then we'll go from there. And so that's what I did. And when my gig ended with them, I went on to another job. But then when she decided to move on to another company, she called me and was like, hey, I'm leaving here. Do you want my job? I didn't get it right away because um, there were just some other people who were in their purview who had done the job prior to me and had the title already so of course you know sometimes experience is going to beat out someone that you you know you feel could do the job but haven't actually done it i've done i had done the job at that point the eic title from that company where i was everything but i didn't have the official title that was my only regret from leaving that company not making them give me the title before i left because then i kind of had to reprove to people that i can do the work um, because I didn't have the title to say that I did do the work. Um, so anyway, so, so it went to somebody else, but that person was again, another cool person who recognized that I still brought something to the table. So she brought me back under her as a line producer, kind of the same way a senior line producer. Um, I was this time around though, I wasn't content with that. I'm just like, I've been doing the work. I know I can be an EIC. I know I can do this. So I opted to leave. I, I opted to leave. I got an offer for a longer gig, still line producing, but I was like, you know what? If I'm, if I'm still have a line producer title anyway, then I will go somewhere where the gig is longer and I potentially make more money. So, um, what I did when I was leaving though, is I emailed the owners of the company and I said to them, like, listen, I'm not sure because because even in this whole process, they never gave me an official res, uh, interview because they knew me. Everyone just assumed we knew what she can do. No need to in formally interview her. So I said, listen, I didn't have a formal interview with you guys. I want you to know here is my resume. Um, and I wrote them this long email about what I'm qualified to do. And I just simply said kind of the same boldness I had before when I had to get into BBC. I said, I am an EIC. I have done the work. Um, if you guys want me to come back, I need to come back as an EIC. And again, I promise you, you will not regret it. I just need someone to give me the opportunity. And then I gave them a little snippet of what I felt I can. So I was like, here's how you've been doing things. Here's a little bit of how I would do things. 
here is the benefit it would bring to you. I gave them like a little sneak preview of what I would do if they gave me the EIC job. And sure enough, I went over to that other job as a line producer. And within two weeks, the company was asking me back as the EIC. So um, I did that for a year before they decided to close the company. And then that's how I got to my current job. I came over to Rockstrom as an EIC. I've been there now for four years. My first three years there, I was, uh, my title was EIC, but um, thankfully while I was there, the company grew. We were getting more and more projects. We had more and more freelancers working with us. Therefore, my responsibilities grew and um, my bosses who are the owners of the company, I report directly to them. You know, they recognized uh, my work and the fact that it was, um, my workload had increased and I took on the role of senior vice president of production. Congratulations. Like quite the journey and like you obviously proved yourself in the ways that you were, you know, saying, let's say I was starting my own production company and I needed a production management department. Okay. How would you recommend I map out the department as opposed to like what you do on a day-to-day basis? Okay, perfect. Um, Okay, so if you are starting a production company and you're looking to set up a production management team, the best thing you can do is to start with a senior person because the senior person can do everybody else's job below them. If you're hiring the proper senior person, they can. Um, And when you're starting up, you're going to need to keep the amount of people that you have uh, to a minimum. So while a senior person might be more expensive because they can do more work than other people, then you're going to be saving in the end. Um, you don't need to go as senior as like a senior vice president, uh, but you can start with a line producer, or if you really can't afford the budget for a line producer, you can start with a PM. But, um, if you have, you start with like a coordinator, once you start to get out there and really start to shoot, the coordinator is not going to be able to do enough work for you. So you're going to end up hiring, keeping the coordinator and then hiring a PM and possibly a line producer. Uh, so the, the various positions are as senior vice president of production, Um, I oversee all projects that come through our doors, Um, whether it is a project that's already greenlit or whether it's a project that's in development, just an idea, whatever it is. Um, Because once we have something that we're discussing with the network behind that, you have to also give them the structure on how you plan to accomplish it. So the creative side, the producers, directors, the EPs, they create the vision, but they don't create a structure like how many weeks do we need to do this? How many bodies do we need to do this? Um, that all is all of that is what is what I do. So once they have an idea and they write a treatment for it, they give it to me. I read the treatment from that. I'm determining, OK, this is a three camera shoot, possibly a five or six camera shoot. Um, we're going to need about three days per episode, five days per episode. It all depends on what we're accomplishing to shoot this we're going to need a crew of this size. We're gonna need these various departments to get this done. I'm doing all of that. I'm creating a schedule first with the structure of all the positions and what we need in the work. Um, and then I'm taking that structure and dropping it into budget. I'm also, um, once, we, once I drop the ideal version of what needs to be done into a budget, I'm then, you know, condensing it as needed as to whether or not we would actually get that money from the network. I'm just like, all right, ideally we could have 10 cameras. We're not going to get this. We got to find a way to do five cameras. All right. So, so 
that's an overview of like of the job is like I'm developing the structure and the business plan behind each project. Um, you know, determining what type of payroll setup we might need for this, working with accounting to do that. The deal memos, we have like a standard deal memo for the company, but is this, we had one show that was a little bit more hazardous than another one. So we had to add specific wording for that. So I'm talking to legal, what are we adding to these deal memos to make sure that everyone's aware of what they're getting into, they're protected, we're protected. Um, so again, that's why someone, if you're starting out a company, having someone more senior, you get all of that in the package that you wouldn't get if you went for a cheaper person, a coordinator, just because it's all you had the money for. Um, down there from, from me, you will go to, unless there's like a head of production or another person in between me, you will go to the line producer who does what I do, but focuses on one show. Um, one project. So she does all of these, he or she does all of these things that I've done on the level of just that project. As the SVP, I'm also like determining what resources can we share between shows? How, you know, how do we make it work for overhead, things to keep our doors open? I'm determining things like that, that you're not, the line producer is not thinking about. They're not thinking about the company. They're just thinking about the project. Uh, I mean, to think about the company and that like, you have to make sure the state the set is safe. You have to make sure we're following um, le legal guidelines just because we don't want the company going under by getting sued, but they're not responsible for making sure the company's doors stay open. But line producers, if you find the right person, they should be able to have conversations with legal, just like I do. They should be able to write a budget. At, at minimum, if they can't write a budget, they need to be able to know how to properly track a budget and follow a budget. Um, how to move money around in budgets because a lot of the times, especially with first season shows, you, 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 you think this is the way it's gonna go. So you budget the money on how you think it's gonna go and then it goes completely different once you get out there. So you're realizing, okay, I thought that we were gonna spend tens of thousands of dollars in location fees, but we were actually able, our producers were great. They were able to negotiate um, these locations for free. But now we need to, um, maybe now we need more people to light the spaces that they got for free. So we need a larger lighting package, more G&E people, because although the space was, was for free, it requires more crew to get it ready. So you're gonna take that money that you had from locations and you're gonna move it over to your lighting budget. Uh, it's surprising how many people cannot think like that. And if they, if the initial budget does not have the money, they're going to tell you, no, you can't do it. And um, while we, while I do have the tough job and people on this side of the business have a tough job of speaking for the money and you kind of have final decisions, although the EPs think they do, the money always has the final decision. Therefore you have the final decision. But because the way this industry is set up, EPs don't like to hear no. So if you are a wise line producer or someone in this, this side of the business, you would understand that whether or not you have the money, your job is try to is to try to accomplish the EP's vision the best that you can. So it is in your best interest to learn how to move money around and to understand the work inner workings of a budget in order for you to accomplish um, and get you know, maintain the production value that the producers want, the, the production value that was pitched to the network to, in order to get the show that that's wanted. Um, so that would be the next level is the line producer. From there, um, the line producer is also 
also, sorry, skilled in, you know, having those difficult conversations, knowing how to hire and fire people because that happens. And it is a delicate line, especially like when I first started in the business, freelancers did not have that many rights. Now they have just as much rights as employees and you have to do things properly and in order. So you need a line producer who really understands how to speak to people and how to properly hire, how to properly fire. Um, you have to get the right wording in these offer letters so that if you have a situation where you have to fire someone or let them go early, that you are protective and you protected and you have the right to do that. So you want to, you want someone who knows how to communicate, um, and just can be strategic. And also with negotiating with vendors, understands equipments, knows what we should be paying for stuff. Not just like, okay, I got this quote for a hundred thousand dollars for the camp, for the camera equipment. But of course, their first quote is inflated. You don't know unless you know gear, you don't and how much it should cost. You can't really go back and challenge and say, hey, I know I can get that for $50,000 and I'm not paying more than 54 so go ahead and revise your invoice. That's really what you have to um, say to people, but you can only do that confidently like that, like I just did, if you truly know your stuff. Um, so that's what you're looking for for a line producer. A person like that, who really knows their stuff now can do the role of everyone else. They can do the PM. So the PM's job is really when you go out in the field, the PM is the person who's like the adult and making sure that the, the shoot runs properly. They're making sure- And the PM the, uh, is a production manager. manager. Yes, production manager. Your PM is making sure that the PAs um, have their assignments that so they're going, they're helping the various departments, they're going on the runs and coming back and bringing the stuff. They're checking in with all the department heads to see what are their needs. They're the ones that are keeping the day-to-day -day of the actual shoot running. So the line producer is either not on set and back in the office, or if he or she is on set, they're probably still in some type of makeshift office on set where they're dealing, they're buried in the paperwork, like do, doing payroll and updating the cost tracker and the budgets and all that stuff. So you need someone who's not buried under paperwork who can keep track of all those things. If you are in a bind and you don't have money for both a, P a line producer and a PM, a truly experienced line producer can do both. I've done it several times on smaller projects where they didn't have enough money for both. I serve the role of line producer and PM. So again, although my rate as a line producer was higher, in the end, I still save the company money because if they had to hire a line producer plus a PM, it would have been a whole lot more um, than what they end up spending on production management. Uh, after the production manager is the production coordinator. That person is, um, you could use them two ways. You could use a, co a production coordinator primarily in the office, helping the line producer when all that tons of paperwork is coming in, the various purchase orders that have to be written. They're helping keep track of, of you know, filing, organizing, doing some of the data entry. And then the line producer is primarily like assessing what the coordinator has entered. Or you could have a field coordinator who needs to be out there on the shoot helping the PM um, run the day-to-day. How you use your coordinator really depends on the size of your crew and the demands of the crew and what you need. Um, again, if you have a proper line producer, they might not need a coordinator in the office. They could probably juggle all the office work themselves and then you can keep your people in the field as they're needed. Um, you don't have a proper line producer, then you're looking at hiring, hiring more people. Um, so the long answer 
to your question, uh, Londe, is if you are starting up a um, production company, don't be discouraged by the rate of a line producer. Focus first on understanding what the person's ability is, the value that they will bring to the table, what they're capable of doing, how many roles are they capable of handling at one time. If you have a qualified line producer who can multitask, they are going to be worth the money of the rate and bring you savings in the end when you don't have to keep hiring other people to do the job. Eventually you will as you grow because everyone has their capacity. So eventually you will have to bring in more people, but they'll help you having this person will help you um, be in business a little bit longer before you have to start bringing in more people. And then when you reach a point where it's like, okay, we need to start um, tightening things back up and letting some of the freelancers go, then that person also knows how to wrap out all those other people's roles so that they can now, um, they can now assume those roles also on the back end. What's the difference between an executive in charge and a senior vice president? Largely it's about, what you are doing for the company and how much you are responsible for for the company so like i said every every company you have the the entertaining side of it like seeing what happens in front of the camera the producers brainstorming but every production company has to keep their doors open so there is a business side of it where you have to make enough money to keep the doors open. And there's a lot of strategy that goes into it with budgets. The truth is, is that the budgets the networks give you are not enough money to keep your doors open. Londe asks me all the time, do you want your own production company? And I'm like, girl, when I see the struggle, I don't know. I really don't because it takes a lot. You have to have um, recurring shows. You have to have like one show is not keeping your doors open. The, and the budgets are getting smaller and smaller and tighter and tighter. And the interesting thing is the networks think that production companies are making so much savings off of these shows. And that is not the case. What is the only reason why companies are surviving right now is because they have multiple shows and they're using overhead resources to make up for where the network has not given us enough money. Um, and that's what, that is the difference. When I was just, when I was EICing, although I was over all of the projects for the company, I was really, really deeper into the projects themselves and um, keeping the projects running. And I was looking at the umbrella, like how we combine resources to fill in the gaps for where the network budgets are shortchanging us. Um, but then as we, as we grew and we took on more projects, that type of strategy now is a bigger role. You need to strategize even more how to make it work across the projects, how to juggle it to make sure that um, we don't lose. When you have more projects, although you have more money coming in, your risk of losing is greater because the chances of every show going smoothly is, you know, that's not, you know, sometimes Murphy's Law kicks in and whatever could happen, happens. So it's a plus because you have more income coming in, but your risk, your liability, the chances of people getting hurt, the chances of something going wrong, the chances of hitting an overage increases. And you now need someone to focus on that more than the nitty gritty of the day to day. So with me now taking on more of a strategizing role for the company for how to um, juggle all these projects, the workflow, 
what parts of our company policy might now need to change um, with changing labor laws, with changing the fact that we have more people in-house, stuff like that. Uh, that's really what changed. Overall, though, I could still do all of it. And especially since we, we were in the process of um, uh, figuring out expanding the production team before COVID-19 happened, all of that's on pause now that it did. In the interim of us not, of me not having a number two, I was still doing all the work I did before, plus taking on this bigger, um, this bigger view. So in a nutshell, the, the main difference is your view of the company. You have a higher view of the company. You have a bigger impact on how we use the resources than you do at the EIC level. EIC level is still very much about the shows. SVP is more about the company. Can you talk a little bit about what would qualify someone to be ready to start a production company? Because especially since budgets are getting tighter and there's way more at stake. While I have mixed feelings as to whether or not, um, whether or not I would start a production company, I do want to see more people um, have production companies and retain more rights to their own work, especially our people. I really do want to see that happening. So I think in starting out, you know, first and foremost, you have to have a good idea and sell it. I really don't think you should formally start a production company until you've sold something and you have some income coming in. Otherwise, um, formally starting a, a production company just puts you potentially developing some liabilities and different things like that. There's, there's no need to go that far. Um, you know, like, I'm not, and I'm not even talking about like, um, you know, form your LLC. No, 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 nothing's stopping you from doing that. Form your LLC or do it as an S corp if you want. What I mean by saying actually starting a lot of production companies when you're looking at like hiring people, bringing freelancers on, contracting and stuff like that. Um, I wouldn't do it until you had an actual project with some funding behind it, just because um, what exactly are you committing to and how do you feel that you can commit to that commitment? How do you feel like you can carry out that commitment if you don't know where the money is gonna come from for it? You know, now there's all this crowdfunding for independent stuff, so that could be the source. So I'm not even saying sell it to a network and you get their money and that's what it is. I just, I just mean you need to know where the income is coming from to pay for whatever you are committing to, to, to someone that you're bringing on for the project. Um, with that, I would say anyone is qualified to have a production company if you're going to um, be real with yourself and acknowledge whether or not you can handle the business side of things. And you have to have a very honest conversation with yourself. You need to know, are you a money person? Are you really going to take the time to move the money around in a budget? Are you really going to, when your creative hat is, is, is dreaming these big things, are you going to be capable of reining yourself in and say, hey, wait a minute, as great as that idea is, can I afford to make it? And if you can't do that, then it doesn't mean you can't have a production company. It means you need to hire someone like me to do it for you. And the reality is most people can't do both. Most people cannot wear both hats at the same time because your creative brain wants to be creative. And truthfully, you should be creative. You should be creative 
you, if, if you got a contract, if you got money coming in, it's because you had an amazing idea. You should have the freedom to focus on that idea and, and let someone else worry about how to keep your company afloat. Doesn't mean that you don't have a say because with my company right now, I advise them, but I remind them all the time, you have the final answer, you final say. That's what I do with the, the, the owners. I will assess, I will analyze, I will write up, I will pitch, I do my own type of pitching, even budgets is pitching. I will pitch things to them, but at the end of the day, it's your company, you have the final decision. You need someone in your corner. If you are honest with yourself and you cannot handle and wear both hats, then you need someone in your corner who you can trust, who will make big decisions for you, but wait for you to sign off on those decisions before they execute it. It's a hard task because the trust right there in itself is hard um, and it's a challenge. So I'm not saying this as something easy for everyone to accept, but to me, just in the, all the years that I've been on the side of the business and what I've seen, I've seen successful companies. I've seen co companies that have gone into the ground. Um, that is just my advice to you that you really do not start it until you have some type of money coming in. And that um, if, you, if you're going to start it, once you have that money coming in, one of your first hires needs to be a production management person who can um, make decisions for you that are going to become harder the deeper you get into the creative side of it. Um, so can we clear or can you clarify what type of production companies we're talking about? Because in my mind, there are different levels to this. You know, like you're at a, you're at a big production company where there's like what a hundred people or something like that. Yeah. And then, but, but you also have like these smaller production companies that um will have maybe like two or three people, like a a director and editor. Like, would yeah. you would you tell those people to wait as well? Like, what, what if I wanted to start like a production company to shoot weddings or something like that? So yes, there are different types of production companies. Our production company does not have a hundred employees. We have like a hundred plus freelancers. So first of all, you have to know the, the difference. Like employees are staff people that you are paying whether or not you have a show in house. They are staff, they are salaried people. You offer them health benefits. If you can, you offer them a 401k. You, they are getting benefits that an employee at any other company in a different industry would get. Um, so we, then you have your freelancers who you bring on contract for the period of time that you need them. Um, and their rates are just their rates. You're not offering them any health insurance, any benefits other than that. So first, first there's two different things. So my company that I'm at right now, our core staff is like 10 people. It's not, it's, it's not a larger production company compared to some of the other ones. It's not a small one, but it's not a larger one. Where, we, where you see the volume for us is because we have so many projects coming in and out. We always have a ton of freelancers working with, with us at any given moment. So at any given moment, we could have 100 plus freelancers working. But these freelancers are on contract. We know what budget they're paying, being paid for, when they roll onto a budget, when they roll off. And we're not employing them and paying them in between projects. We're only paying them as needed. So now going to a smaller company, it really depends on, again, what you are offering people. So if you wanted to, for your example, if you want to start a production company that is um, 
a production company that to, to shoot weddings. I'm not suggesting don't form the company. I am definitely saying go out there, get your LLC or your S Corp if you want to be an INC instead. Understand the differences of you know when you should pick which one. Look into the insurance. Look into all things that you do. Get your branding. Get your Instagram together. Get all of that. What I'm saying is do not commit to people working for your company until you know how you're going to pay them. That's what I mean. I have an LLC. I have a production company. It's called Young at Heart Productions LLC. Is it operating as a production company right now? No, it's not. I don't, I'm not bringing in any, any income off of it. I'm not employing anyone from it. That's it. So it is, in theory, a production company. If I decided right now I wanted to start shooting weddings. I could use that as my venue to start shooting weddings through it. But there's a difference between having a, a having that LLC and then actually operating as a company. So do all you can. Set up your brand, branding, advertise, go get those clients. Um, just make sure you know how to, to um, how you're going to pay people before you start to commit. Now, if you're a one-man band, then that's different. You know, all you got to worry about is how you're going to get money to pay yourself. But at the point that you bring other people involved and you need to pay them, that's where you need to make sure that you have, you're doing it properly. The labor laws are different now than they were before. You really need to do, make sure you're operating above board. Um, it's also different where if like, you're like, like you said, like if you're, you're a DP and you get your friend to help you, whatever, it's also different if they're coming into the business as a partner. If you are all collaborating and you own this company together, then you're not worrying about really how to pay them. Honestly, when you, when you get paid, they, they get paid. Whatever pot you get, you guys are splitting it. I'm, I mean really at the point that you are starting to employ people, whether staff or as a freelancer, you need to first make sure how you know how you're going to pay them. What makes a production company efficient or a well-oiled machine, I should say? I would say consistency. Um, Especially when you're going to start bringing more people on to work with you, consistency um, helps you when things get complicated, right? So um, if you typically pay a rate for something, when you consistently stick to that, when you have confusion with someone over whether or not what they're being paid, the consistency is what helps you. If you give out petty cash, you have guidelines, you have a consistent process. It's only with the consistency that you know when something's out of order, when, okay, we have a problem here. If you are constantly making up rules as you go along, you have no checks and balances of knowing, okay, this is not right. Therefore, we need to stop and we need to do this to fix it. A lot of the times people will just come to me and ask me to make an exception. For example, okay, yes, perfect, here we go. So one of our consistent things is, and because we just go by what we get in our budgets, is when people travel, um, we give them a set per diem, right? People will come to me and try to negotiate a different per diem, or they'll try to say, well, fine, I'll take this per diem, but then pay me extra on top of this or on top of that. When you're dealing with higher above the line positions like directors and executive producers and showrunners they have agents so i'm be honest typically they do get something negotiated that's different from your standard but everyone else especially below the line consistency i usually say i cannot make a separate deal for you because what 
happens when someone else asks me for that deal and I can't afford to give it to them. I have no reason to justify why I paid you more for this and them not for that. It's different when it comes to like salaries because you could justify someone's skill being different or whatever, but something, stand, something like per diem should be standard across the project. Having the consistency sets the standard and then the standard is what you use to gauge whether you're doing well or not. If you have no consistency, you have no standard, you have no gauge. You are literally making up things on the fly and that is not the way to run a company. Um, you, it's also putting everything in my plate. If, if I had to approve every single deal that came across our table, I would never get anything done. But having consistency, some rules, some guidelines enables the rest of the team to do their jobs also. Because now they know these are the parameters that I work within. This is what my approval rights are. I know that I could approve something for $500 without going to Tiffany for it. Therefore, bam, you just got crew meal approved without having to talk to me. You know, but you know that if it costs $5,000, you have to come to me. So you need to hold and talk to me. You know, it's just having the consistency, having the standard, having the guidelines, having a way to gauge whether everything really is running smoothly or whether you have a problem that needs to be, that needs to be addressed. Do you have, do you have any tips as far as like developing systems? It sounds like you're yeah. talking about systems um, in place. I would say that Excel is your friend. If you were going to do this side <laughs> of the business, you really need to know and understand and love Excel. If you don't take some crash courses on Excel, because it is your best friend. There is some software coming out that is good. Like I use Showbiz Budgeting now to um, track our shows rather than Excel. I like it because the formula is locked in and there's less, less human error with the software. But even still in using that, you still, it's, it's like Excel based. So you still have to understand how the columns and all those things work in Excel, how setting up a formula works in order to use so showbiz budgeting. A lot of the software that is coming out is Excel based and you will be lost if you don't know Excel. Um, even Movie Magic, um, the software to write budgets, it flows a little bit like Excel too. So if you don't understand how you would use the columns in Excel, you're not really going to understand how to use them in movie magic. So uh, Excel will be your best friend in strategizing. And it's not just money. I use, I use um, Excel to do a lot of scheduling and to lay out information. So you can be an amazing strategist. You could have the best solutions to a problem. But if you cannot communicate it to people clearly and effectively, your solution goes nowhere. So you have to understand who you're working with because it changes. I may present information to Londe in one way and present it to you in a different way. Not because I'm trying to confuse you guys and, and, and get you on my side versus her. But one of the things that I do is understand people's personality. I understand how they, um, I pay attention to how they comprehend information. You know, what type of personality are you? Are you a list format? Are you a visual person? Because if I send you a ton of information in a bullet point list, and it would have been better in a grid, then I just wasted both of our time. Because now I'm going to be talking to you in this bullet point list, and you're going to be like, what? I don't get it. And I'm going to redo a grid anyway. So Excel 
is going to be your favorite, your best friend, because I can create lists in Excel and I can create grids in Excel. And if I do the information in one way, thinking that somebody is um, going to understand it this way, if they don't, it will, it's very easy because I know Excel for me to reformat it and present it in a different way. Um, so that is, that is key. That is one way as far as like, um, a product that can help you strategize. Other than that strategy in itself is, you knowing you have to know your stuff. You have to know how everything works. You got to know how, um, and you think the thing is you don't have to know it as well as the expert. So like in the camera department, I don't know, have to know the ins and outs of the cameras the way a DP does, you know, but I do need to know which cameras work better in low lighting than the cameras that don't. I do need to know which cameras are too heavy for the type of shooting that we're doing because it helps me strategize the budget. It helps me understand where I need to put the money and it helps me when I'm negotiating with them because uh, part of strategy is negotiating and it helps me understand and talk their language. When you speak to someone in the department and you don't know their language, they could tell you anything. They could tell you anything and you could fall for anything. But the moment you could speak their language, even if you can't speak it exactly the way they speak it, you, you've already set the ground. Like, look, we're going to have an honest conversation. And, I, and I've seen it. I've seen it happen. I've seen it, seen it where um, the lighting team will tell me, I need um, 10 bodies for this. And um, they'll try to explain why they need 10 bodies. I know in the budget, I only got five bodies. And with moving money from other lines, I could probably spare six, but that's about it. And, um, and I did that budget that way, knowing that this type of show should really only need six bodies. So when they're talking to me about the 10, I have them tell me, okay, tell me why you think you need the 10. And because I know their lingo, I'm popping holes. I'm like, nope, you can move after that guy is done here, you can move him over there. After he's done, you move him here. That's how you make your six guys work. Cause all I'm doing is giving you six guys. And it, if, but that was a strat the strategy. So I strategized that, but I was only able to strategize them and present them with a new way to do it because I knew a little bit of what they were doing. Um, so again, so if, if you are going to strategize for a company, you have to know, if not everything about everything, then you have to know a little bit about everything enough to have these conversations. Can you talk about being underestimated? I know you've touched on it to a degree, but can you tell us about a situation where you were underestimated, especially as a woman, as a black woman, and how you circumvented the issue? Um, there's there's so many there's so many stories that I could think of. I'm trying to think about what what are the safest ones for me to share. Right, I was gonna say we don't want to get you in trouble, but you know. <laughs> Some of them are crazy. Some of them are crazy. So of course, I'm not going to name any names or any particular companies, but and I'll keep it a little bit general. Um, I mean, to to be let, let's talk specifically, like where it's black film space. Let's talk about specifically me being a black woman in the business. So I have <laughs> yes, right? Is that what you want to hear? Right. Okay. So I have a very difficult job in that. Um, while most people in production don't want to hear no, it is my job to say no. It is my job to say legally we can't do that, monetarily we can't do that, or if we just find out aren't going to do it, no, we're not going to do it. I have the job of firing people when they don't want to be fired, 
Um, I have the job of when people are negotiating more for themselves saying, nope, sorry, you're not going to get it. And I have to do it politically correct. Um, with that being said, because I'm the one that has the, diff the difficult question, the difficult conversations with people, too many times it's assumed that I may have an attitude, whether or not I have an attitude or, um, or I don't want to take the no from you. Or I've had situations where people assume that I am the PA and my coordinator who doesn't look, next, look like me standing next to me is actually the EIC or the SVP. That's always one that makes, that's funny. And I'm the type of person where, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm an introvert. I'm not a showboater. So when people do that, I will stand there and I will not correct them. I will stand there and let them talk to whoever they think they should be talking to. And at some point in the conversation, the person will have to say, actually, you should be talking to her. And then they feel like an idiot. Um, but I would just say this, the challenge is, so when, when I started at one of my, you know, my, let me not say what company, um, someone I was working with, a black lady, she said to me, she was aspiring to get to where I was. And she said to me, um, my hardest struggle is um, not fighting back because I feel like a lot of the times, you know, we're done wrong and I want to just speak my mind. And I see everyone else speaking their mind, but I can't speak my mind. And she asked me, how did you do it? How, how did you make it here? And I said to her, um, well, I recognize that you're right. I can't speak my mind the same way everyone else did, or at least then when I was trying to climb the ladder, I couldn't speak my mind the way everyone else did. Um, sometimes I try, sometimes I try to fight my, for myself and it didn't help me get any further. And I began to realize that um, if I don't focus on climbing the ladder and playing the game, then I can't help anyone else. If I'm down here at the bottom with you, I can't help you move up. I can't help myself move up. I had to make moving up a priority. So I did realize that I have to speak differently. I have to be calmer. Um, I have to phrase what I'm saying um, a lot differently than other people. Um, and she was like, and her response was, that's not fair though. It's not fair. It's not fair that we can't speak the way everyone else speaks. And I said to her, I was like, you didn't ask me how to make this fair. You asked me how to succeed in the game. And I succeeded by playing the game. Whether you want to call it me selling out or whatever, it's I maintained calm composure no matter what. Because if I had flipped, it would have given them the reason to put me in this category of she is black woman with an attitude. We cannot trust her to talk to our vendors. We cannot trust her to resolve our problems. I was like, but now, now that I am where I am in a higher position, oh, now they hear my opinion. They hear my opinion. They ask for my opinion. They need my opinion. Now I'm in a position where I can speak. And I still maintain the calm composure because that has just that's just my personality now at this point I don't need to to be yelling and and having as much attitude as some other people do and not even our people other people have at they have more attitude than us sometimes I don't need to do that I can get my point across calmly but no one who works with me will tell you that I hold my tongue and that they don't know what I'm thinking my voice tells me all the time she was like you are very direct and I earned the ability to do that. 
I, I focused first, climbing the ladder was my priority. Letting my work speak for itself was my priority. And with people trusting and needing my work came the freedom for me to speak more freely on what I think about things. That's it. That is it. It is, it is, it's not easy. It's very challenging. Um, I have been passed up for jobs where I've just told, been told that, um, uh, I've been told that I'm just not the right fit. <laughs> you know, we've heard various ways of being, do, of doing things. I've been challenged. Um, you know, I, I, I remember just a quick story. I do remember a, an EP, um, calling me frantic about, um, a shoot that was happening and needing to get the tapes FedEx back to the office. Um, and she, although I had a plan, she felt that the plan wasn't right and that we would miss the delivery or whatever. And so I needed to, um, I said to her, I was like, okay, no problem. I will look into the plan and I will, um, I'll call you back. Let me just check on the plan. Let me call the courier service. Let me see what's going on. But she was so frantic that she was, although I said, I'm going to fix it and call you back. She just kept yelling at me on the phone. And I was like, okay, I really need to get off the phone so that I can fix the problem because the window to fix it is closing. And she kept yelling. So I had to raise my voice above her and say, hey, I'm saying I need to get off the phone, call the courier, fix it, and then call you back. And, um, and so, and then I, and I didn't even wait for her to say, honestly, it wasn't like I was trying to hang up on her. I, it didn't matter whether she agreed or not. I knew that I needed to fix the problem. So I got off the phone, I fixed the problem. I called her back. And, um, when I told her how I fixed it, she was like, okay, no problem. And I said, now, do you want to go back and talk about how we reached here? Because you were very concerned about that when you were talking and I want to answer whatever questions you have. She's like, no, 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 it's fine. We'll be fine. I'll see you on Monday. This was Sunday. She interrupted my Sunday afternoon nap, but whatever. So get into the office Monday, smile in my face like there's no problem. And then later in the week, I get called into my boss's office saying that I was inappropriate with her on the phone. I was inappropriate with her on the phone and um, I didn't really get into it. I just, uh, they, they, I did try to explain what ha what happened. They told me, Oh, you're being defensive. And I said, well, the definition of defensive is that I am defending myself. And if I, um, if I didn't feel offended right now, then I wouldn't be defending myself. But what <laughs> I pretty much like repeated to them. Like I just, I simply said to them, I was like, I don't understand why people call see defensiveness as a as a bad thing. I'm defensive because you have offended me and I feel the need to protect myself and explain. If you don't offend me, then I won't feel the need to be defensive. That's it. That that is that is the end of the day and I felt like I was just being challenged in the way that I spoke to her and I did say to them I'm like she walks around here yelling and screaming and cursing at people. And I don't, so I really don't understand why I'm being called in here and I have this conversation, um, it's happening right now. So it was just, that was just a very, um, you know, you could fill in the blanks and you could figure out why I was the one that ended up, although I fixed the problem, you can like do the math and figure out why I was the one that was called into the office. Um, you know, this on this same project too, one other 
crazy thing that happened on the same project, the showrunner, um, you know, I, I faced a lot of racism and also a lot of age discrimination. You know, for us, we yeah. were a lot younger than we actually are. So at that point, I felt like I was old enough to be a line producer, but I looked really young. And I literally, the EP said, um, when I got back from the shoot, the EP told um, his boss, so his executive, that he could not work with me because he did not like the way I looked what said that to me yes and so now I get called into the office and what they asked me is well what did you do how did what happened out there and I was like nothing as a matter of fact like I felt like we were cool out there I mean he did ask me he did allude to the fact that he felt that I was too young to do the job and I assured him that I have more than enough credits to do the job um, but other than that, you know, he was directing and doing his thing in the field. And I was in the office, you know, this was an, again, another show that was, that was going over budgets. So I was primarily working with the PM to pull things together. So I didn't even interact with him that much there. I was mainly working in the office, pulling things together. Um, and they said to me like, well, we kind of have a problem because you know, he's saying he doesn't want to work with you anymore because he doesn't like the way you look. And they literally repeated to me. I mean, like, I'm like, I said myself, like, you guys clearly did not consult an HR person before you came to me with this conversation. Yeah, that's grounds for a lawsuit. Yeah, and I said to them, I was just like, they were just like, well, what are you going to say about it? It's like, what am I going to say about it? What exactly about my look is the problem? Because I wanted to see whether they want to be more direct with me about it. Tell me, what about my look is the problem? I was like, cause I look like I look today to you. It's like, so tell me what the problem is. And they, I think in them saying it out loud and me hearing that they finally realized, well, this is a really inappropriate conversation. So, um, you know, they started to back around away from the conversation, the, the, the topic. And I said to them, I was like, look, I, if you really want to get into him having a problem with the way I look, then this is going to be a bigger conversation. We might need to get more people in this office. And, um, and they were just like, nope, you got it. You're right. We just wanted to understand that something happened behind the scenes that we weren't aware of. And I was like, no, it's not. Unbelievable. Um, not that I'm aware of. And they backed off because they realized how, I, 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 to this day, I still literally cannot believe that that was said to me. I don't, I, I don't even know what to do with it, but I just, I just left it. I was like, it's, that's a whole, that is a whole nother, a larger discussion. I was like, we can have that. We can make this a larger discussion, but I just. I don't know what to say to you. Like, if he has a problem with the way I look, that's not something that I'm willing to change for you. Nor can I change for you. So, yeah. So I, you know, in a nutshell, like I've, I have um, definitely encountered um, some weird responses, weird reactions from people. But at the end of the day, I just focus on getting the job done, and no one can challenge when you pull when you bring in a show. Um, successfully with no major overages no problems it doesn't matter it, it doesn't matter in the day people are going to keep hiring basically i have this mindset I, i've developed this mindset not developed it but i've learned about this mindset in the last few years about owning breakdowns and mistakes that happen with you know team members that i'm leading so if, if they do something that they're not supposed to do, or if they do something that wasn't the right way to do it, that I take responsibility and making sure it doesn't happen again. 
So yeah, can you speak to, but I, but I still struggle with that, even though I know that's the right mindset. There's levels to it, right? Okay. So my mindset with my team is like, if you're on my team, you're on my team. We're a team. You know, your mistake is my mistake. Um, I'm not going to throw you under the bus. You go down, I'm going down. But I always tell my team, I'm not going down. Therefore, you're not going down. So my policy with anyone that works for me is that I need transparency. I need, if you make a mistake, I need you to tell me you made the mistake. Don't try to cover it up. Don't leave it out there festering for me to find it. Don't let, definitely don't let the executive producers find out before I find out because I want to get ahead of it. Like my job as a strategist is I need to get ahead of these problems and have solutions before they even become problems. So that is my team mentality. Like, like how you're saying you like to work your, with your team and take ownership for what everyone is doing. So I definitely, that is my natural way of doing things. I want my team to feel safe to come to me and tell me there's a problem. I made this mistake. How can we fix it? Um, you know, I do the same thing. When I make a mistake, I tell my boss, like, hey, I messed this up. Um, this document, don't send that one. I need to fix it for you and send you another. If it already went out, I'll say to them, no problem. I'll, I'll fix it and then I'll clean up the explanation as to why it was messed up before it goes out or whatever. So even I'm very honest and direct. I find, especially when you're managing people's money, they appreciate a high level of integrity. That's why they trust you. That's also why I'm very consistent and very direct in the way that I speak because uh, I'm not going to jail for anybody. So I'm going to be very, very transparent about what I'm doing with their money. <laughs> oh, no, no. And I tell my owners this all the time. I tell, I tell my bosses all the time. I am not going to jail for anybody. So you can guarantee any books that I touch will pass an audit. I am not going to jail for nobody. So when I said it, it, there's levels to it though, Reggie, is that me fully being able to take responsibility for my team and their mistakes, it worked when I was in a lower position, when I was like line producing, even EICing. As I'm getting further up though, I need to be able to assess whether somebody just has to go. You do. And I feel like when you are too much in the mode of it's our mistake, you can't properly assess when someone has to go. One mistake is one thing. A second one is even not that bad. If you are consistently making mistakes, you need to go. That, and that, that person is not gaining anything from you if you're just going to keep um, helping them helping them cover the mistakes where you're owning their mistakes for them, that that's not helping you. So there's levels to it. If you see someone has potential um, and, and, and they're trying to grow and some of their mistakes are just like growing, like true, honest, growing pains mistakes, then help them. Help them take ownership of their mistake where they're coming to you and being honest with you about what they did. You as the leader, you know, you could say to them, I'm right, your mistake is my mistake. We're going to fix this together. Um, but if this person, especially if they're not even appreciating the fact that you're helping them fix it, then it's time to let them go. I, I, and this was a struggle for me coming up because honestly, I'm a type of person, Lonnie knows this about, about me. I love to mentor. I didn't just climb the ladder for myself. As I climbed the ladder, I pulled people up. 
I met Londe when she was an intern, you know, um, someone that works with her on her other projects. I met her as a logger and I helped her step up to PA, coordinator, PM. She's now a director of a department. So I, I believe in pulling people up. So once I got to the point of realizing that not everyone is worthy of pulling up, not everyone appreciates your efforts to pull them up. That's when my um, definition and my view and my window of ownership changed. And that's when I had to say, okay, first time, yeah, I'm going to help you. Second time, you know, I'm going to help you too. Third time, you're on your own. And honestly, depending on what the mistake was the first or second time, you might not even make it to a third time. You might not even make it to a second time, depending on what the mistake is. Um, so you did it, there's no black and white answer to it. It's definitely levels. First and foremost, you got to protect your job because if you don't have a job, you can't help yourself and you can't help anybody else. So there's no point in going down, helping someone else. So you protect your job first and then use your judgment to determine how you can help someone else. Sounds selfish. It might sound selfish, but in the end, if you keep working, continue to be successful, you can help more people. So it's really not selfish in the end. I do think I, I do understand uh, this notion of, of letting people go if, if they're constantly making mistakes, essentially if they're not qualified for the job. And I think that is part of ownership is like, okay, somebody makes a mistake. I'll own this. How do we make sure that this, this doesn't happen again? Okay, they made the same mistake again. Okay, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? Okay, they keep making the same mistake. Well, then I, I have to own that this mistake won't happen again. And I guess if that's if the only thing I can do is to let them go, then then that's what it is. Um, it seems like I would imagine that your your role, particularly as you've been climbing the ladder over the years, there's more at stake. You know, you're you're dealing with a lot of money. Um, you know, these are these are network television shows, and there's a lot of pressure. Um, I guess, do you get upset? Like when people make mistakes, like how do you, um, it, again, it really, it really depends on what the mistake is. I, you know, you start to know yourself. There are things that you, um, that you realize that you're very particular about. Like people used to call me all the time perfectionist and I would always, I hate that title and I will always try to deny it. Um, the longer I work in this business and the more people I supervise, I'm like, yep, I'm a perfectionist because, because honestly, the accuracy is what makes me good at my job, my documents being accurate. So yeah, so I am a perfectionist. Um, and I know that I can't demand or expect that level of perfectionism from everyone, but then there's a point where like you made mistakes and then there's a point where you're just sloppy and I have no respect for sloppy work. Um, if, if you don't want to be part of the details of this type of document, then you might be on the wrong side of the business and production is not production management is not for everyone. So take your creative mind to the other side of the business. You know, I cannot have you messing up my structure and my consistency just because you don't care. And that is, that is, and I just, it's, it's a gauge. It's, it's hard to say because it's different for everyone. Like to be very specific. In my Excel documents and scheduling, formatting is very, very important to me. 
formatting is what makes it clear to people to understand how this schedule is going to work. When you're building the schedule, I understand moving things around and might look unorganized, but once you've reached a schedule, you need to go back and streamline and make your formatting consistent. Now, if I've built the template for you and all you got to do is drop in information, I need you to respect the format that I've created and format the document properly. If you hand it back to me and the columns are all over the place, the borders are missing, it might seem simple to you. It ain't simple to me. It's not. And I know you might think that I'm crazy. Like some people might think I'm crazy, but now. No, no, you're not. It's important because first of all, I'm trying to present information in a professional way and your, your formatting and your borders and all over the place is bad. And it's laziness to me. It is not, it's not that you couldn't do your job is that you didn't take the time to check your work. And the first time you do it, I'll let you know, go back and fix it. Next time I'll tell you, third time, like, okay, something's going on here. And do you really want to do this job? It says a lot to me. It seems small, but it says a lot to me because it's the care, the consistency, the structure, making sure that you are delivering um, clear information to people that's missing. If you don't care about communicating properly with people, and making sure everyone understands what's happening, then you're not the right person for my team. Now, for someone else though, for you who has a creative mind, you might not care that the boxes are all over the place, but it might be something else for you. Like, you know, they didn't clean the camera lens properly afterwards. It might be something else. So really, right. what, is, what are the key things to you that makes you feel like someone understands and takes their job seriously? What are the things of it, the aspect of the job that you feel are important for it to be conducted? And what the person working for you has to understand, what they truly have to understand, what they feel is important really doesn't matter. You're working for me. What I feel import is important is what matters. And if you are going to be part of the team, you have to first learn to work the way that I'm asking you to work before you change the system. Okay, it's not that I'm not open to hearing opinion. A lot of times in meetings, I'll say, hey guys, I think it should go like this, but what do you think, right? And I will take their advice. I, I, I have changed the ways that I've done things based on what people are telling me. But I do that with people who first took the time to make sure the way that my plant, the way I wanted to do it actually works and they understand it. Because to me, then you understand the key boxes that we need to check. You understand what I'm trying to accomplish. And now whatever you're suggesting is trying to build on or improve what I've already been asking to do. You know, you understand? So um, I don't know if I've answered your question, but. Uh, for the most part, do you get angry? Do I, I get angry. <laughs> that Brooklyn just, creeps just, out here and there. I, know, I, know like, I get angry, they're... but um, <laughs> I have learned to keep a consistent tone no matter what. Now, I'm listen. I'm gonna I'm gonna be completely honest. People have said really nasty things to me, and it's not even and it's not always about race. I'm be honest. It is not always about race. People have said nasty things to me just because they want something and I can't give it to them, and it doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with the way I look. Um, people have said very nasty things. And do I want to retaliate? Do I want to get just as nasty as they do? Yes. But to me, it's not worth it. It's not worth um, the reputation that it will give me. It's not worth, you know, 
me losing something over it. And it's not worth you pulling me out of my element because even outside of work, I'm a calm person. Like most of my friends just talk, say I'm very rational. I'm a very calm person. I think things through. Um, not to say I've never gotten an argument. With, I don't argue with people, but I'm, I do it just in a rational way. I don't like the stress and you pulling that energy out of me. So um, I'm not going to address things in a way where I let you pull me out of my element. And also the higher up you get, here's the thing. I don't need to argue with you. I have this. I have the say. I have the final decision. That's right. Argue That's right. You know, a lot of times we make it and we're like, we're, we've made it and we're still fighting to prove that we made it. No, rest in the fact that you made it. Like, why are you arguing with someone who's trying to make it? Um, you know, you cut those ties. You cut those losses. Look, if you can't respect what I'm saying, you can't work with me, then we don't need to work together. That's, you know, that, that's it. So I just approached it that way. I don't, I don't argue on the job. I, I am very direct. I'm going to be honest. I am very blunt. And people have complained about that. But my boss, what I love about her is she fully backs me up on me being direct. She's like, Tiffany manages millions of dollars for us. I need her to be clear and transparent with people about what's happening with that money. So if you are upset that she's direct, just know and understand that, um, that I'm behind her. Literally, I've had people tell me um, when I tell them no to something, I've had people tell me, oh, I'll go to your boss. You know, I'll go to your bosses. I'll tell them what you said. And my response to them is like, please do. Anytime somebody threatened me, I'm like, I'll give you her email. I'll give you her phone number. Please do. Please call her and tell her whatever you want to tell her about me. Because the one thing my boss knows is that I am direct. I am, I am transparent. I have high integrity in the way that I do my job. And um, she's going to tell you that if I had to tell you no, that it was for a reason. So please do. And thankfully, when they go to her, she does back me up. Uh, I know that not everyone has that same support. And so it's harder, but fortunately that, that is my situation now. That's why I'm still there because I do get that support. Speaking of you managing millions of dollars, can you talk a little bit about uh, maybe a unique situation where you helped keep a company afloat? Okay, um, sure. Very good question. Um, I, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to share a lot because just one of the things about managing people's money is that you have to keep how they how they do some things, you know, financially. Legally, okay, yes. no yes. problem. Yes, I, um, so yes, I have honestly, in my early stages of line producing, interestingly, I became like a line producer who saved shows that were in trouble. Rather than getting a bunch of pilots that were starting, well, no, I did a lot of pilots too, but rather than getting like shows that were in their like third, fourth, fifth season who had all the kinks worked out, I was getting a lot of pilots that take a special kind of line producing and budgeting because there's no template before it. You are creating a template and you're dealing with all the wild cards that come up with the first run of shooting something. And then I was getting called into a lot of projects where the line producer something happened, they fell off, show was in trouble, and they need somebody to get it back on track. Um, I think that's where a lot of my, the work that I end up doing on the accounting side um, came up because it helped me just be able to go into someone else's like 
tracker and they, what they were doing and reverse engineer how they did things. And I don't think I would have been able to do that unless I understood how the accounting side of the business worked also. But, um, but yeah, I was at a company that I wasn't at for a long time because what, at the time that I started working there, they knew they were in financial trouble. Um, they were in the red and um, I was tasked with trying to bring them out the red and could we keep the company afloat? Um, and I just, so we, they were selling projects, thankfully. So they were selling projects and was bringing in money. Um, but in, but in working with them, I realized the areas where they were hemorrhaging money. So it was just the way that they were spending. Um, once they made a decision, they weren't sticking to it. After some money had been spent on it, then they were changing their minds and, and starting all over again with it so that the money that had already been spent now was a loss because now you've started from the beginning and we got to spend that money all over again now that we're at the beginning. Um, and it was just was a lot, a lot of just, um, it goes back to when I was saying that some people cannot wear both hats and they didn't, they were trying to wear both hats and make creative and money decisions and it wasn't working. So what I did is I went in and I just started renegotiating a lot of the contracts. Um, I mean, honestly, we could, we could do a whole other session on just negotiating, but I went in and was renegotiating sessions, um, their deals. So things that they, they were paying way too much for, I got them the same thing for much less money. Um, so that was number one, I renegotiated anything that I thought we're overpaying for. I renegotiated the deal that brought the company expenses down. Um, the way that they were hiring people, they were bringing a lot of people on too early or they were wrapping them out too late. So I restructured the production schedules and now we were bringing people on truly for the window of time that we needed. So again, that was another reduction in cost because we weren't paying um, as much money. And this is where people get angry because of course, like the freelancers who have been working with them for a long time were now angry with me that they're getting shorter contracts. But hey, I was there to protect the company, not the freelancers. So I, you know, and in the long run, it helps the freelancers because if the company's out of business then you get no work from them. So I got to help them keep the doors open so that you can keep having a job. No one sees it that way though, when they mad at you, but that's what I was um, of course. doing. So a lot, that was a lot of it. I just went in and it always starts with, I don't walk in with trying to bulldoze and just change everything. I always go in first with, I want to understand what was happening here. So I go in almost like an auditor and I look at the books, I look at the cost reports, I look at the, the general ledger from accounting. And I tell this, some people think I'm crazy, but I tell people numbers speak to me. The numbers tell me a story. I could understand what your spending habits were. I could understand, um, you know, like how you were giving out petty cash and how, whether, whether people were using it properly, like the, the, the numbers say a lot to me about a production structure and whether it's set up properly or not. So I did, I'll do that for the first week or so. It depends on how much, how, you know, how long I'm needed there where I'm just analyzing it. And then from there I assess like, okay, we're going to cut back here. We're going to cut back here. You have these two projects um, shooting at the same time. So rather than doing two separate rentals, we're going to do one rental for a longer amount of weeks. And the longer you do a rental, the more discount you get on the rental. I'm going to start combining resources, um, you know, with you. And so I successfully, got that company out of the red, figured out how to pay off their bat set and kept them functioning in the black. They eventually decided um, 
you know, to go a different direction in the, with the company um, and not to continue working the company, but, um, but they were able to exit in the black, not in the red. So, yeah. Awesome. Um, can you also talk about, you know, more current events, I guess, how are, how's the production world responding to COVID-19 right now? And how's that impacting, you know, how you yeah. do your job? Yeah. So, okay. So thankfully I'm still, I'm still working. Um, our, our, when COVID hit in March, we had a few projects. We had a project that was actually out shooting and we had to stop it down, um, bring everyone home. We had to stop down into projects that were about to shoot. Um, and just pretty much everyone in the TV world is in the same position where filming is at a standstill. Where we are fortunate is that um, I was able to figure out a plan for us, for our post team to work remotely. So we are keeping post going. So I'm still working because, you know, I don't just oversee uh, production. I also oversee post. So, um, so I'm, I'm overseeing posts right now for our editors that are still going on. Plus I'm staff. So thankfully they were able to, um, to, to work things out where I could stay on, but it, it, this definitely hit the TV world and we're having lots of conversations right now about if, when, how can we shoot again? And the, the hardest part about it is just the unknown. Like there's lots of information circulating, still circulating, about new protocols that are needed um, on set, you know, whether or not you can maintain social distancing and whether in cases where you can't, can you get enough PPE for people, enough masks, enough um, disinfectant, you know, uh, if you travel people, can you quarantine them for up to 14 days before they shoot? And honestly, a lot of the, in the material and the suggestions out there are very interesting. A lot of them are doable but only if you had unlimited money that is the problem it's like you know i tell people i could fix i could fix any problem with money seriously any problem with money but that's not what makes problem solving hard problem the hard part of problem solving is finding a solution that fits your budget and so um a lot of our shows were budgeted pre-covid 19 and the extra expenses. And this is not just, I'm not just talking about on behalf of my company. This is everyone. This is the general TV industry conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the COVID-19 expenses right now are not incorporated into whatever budgets you had before COVID-19. So are the networks going to allow you to open up your budget to now add in these extra expenses? Um, are they realistic? And at the end of the day, while there all these recommendations are coming out on what you should do. There's still this question and uncertainty. If you did everything you could do to keep people safe and someone still tests positive, what happens? You literally have to shut down your show again. And so for shows that have already shut down because of this, you're now facing a possible second shutdown. The expenses are just building up and building up from that. And so, um, you know, I belong, I belong to a group of EICs and we're all talking about it. Um, the producers at my company are talking to other producers. Like everyone is talking about it in this industry right now. Um, there's tons of suggestions, tons of solutions out there. But with all this unknown, first of all, when would New York be actually open up again? You know, um, 
that's the unknown. So we could talk about time frames, but the reality of it, can we shoot in these time frames? We when this first happened, we thought, oh, okay, we're just shutting down to like the summer. We'll be shooting again by the summer. Now here we are in May, and they're not gonna lift, they're not lifting the stay-at-home order right now. So we can't shoot anything in New York possibly this summer. Um, you know, so we're pushing things to 2021 if we can. Uh, and then that's that's just a general wow. thing. It's like it's sad. I mean, like the thing about it is with freelancers is that they're freelancers. They only work, they only get paid if they work. So the hardest part for COVID was knowing how many of our freelancers now are not working um, because of it. It's just really, it's really sad. It's really sad that, um, sad about it. I mean, but the ray of hope to me is that like, you know, with everyone being home and consuming content in the way they're consuming content now, our jobs are becoming even more relevant now than they were before. It's just, it's just showing the industry even more how much our content is needed. So when this is in a better place, when it is safe for us all to be back out in filming, there's going to be tons of things being made, tons of jobs all over the place. So for anyone who is not ready, get ready. Learn your skills, whatever skill you can while you're home. Develop a new skill if you want. Because um, when we're back in, everyone's going to be working everyone is gonna um you know it's gonna be interesting for the new people coming in it's gonna be a little bit hard because since all of the experienced people are unemployed right now everyone's gonna grab the experienced people first but the ray of hope is that for you is that so many things are gonna go into production at the same time that someone's gonna have to take new people you know, there's only a limited supply of the experienced people. Someone's going to have to take new people. So um, get ready. Get ready because it's, it's, it hit us hard right now. But when we go back, we're going back with a, with a boom, a, a big boom. I love the way you talk about it because <laughs> not everyone is so optimistic, you know. Um, yeah. But I, I agree with you, honestly. Yeah, it's hard to be optimistic about it. And honestly, I'm not going to say that the conversations don't drive me crazy. You know, we yeah. have, we talk about it like literally every day and we go in a circle because it is hard to make decisions when you just don't know. And right now, the no is not in our control. It's not like we could just figure it out ourselves. We are at the mercies of what the news is telling us. We are at the mercies of the government saying it's safe for us to go back out inside again. Um, it's just not anything you know. And it's tough. It's like, you like we don't want anyone getting sick like we don't want anyone getting sick we don't want to you know like we just we want to do what we do we want to make money but we want to just be safe and it's um it's really it's just really a struggle it's it's hard um but I've been you know I think I've just been trying to focus like I like my job is still very busy like when you're a money person you're you're busier now than ever because I'm constantly assessing what this has cost us and I'm constantly um, in assessing what it would cost us if we had to shut down again, if we did try to start back up. So I'm constantly doing some type of assessment right now. But um, even with that, I just try to, you know, I try to see if there's anything, any new skill that I can gain right now. Like Instagram Live, I love it. So many people are sharing their free advice and information online that I just listen to as many of those chats as possible because. Um, you know, I'm just trying to gather. It never hurts you to gain a new skill or improve a skill you already have. Now it's time to do it. Awesome. Um, well, Tiffany, this was really, really informative. Um, I'm excited for our, you know, community to hear this podcast episode. 
But before we wrap, um, we'd love to hear anything that you have coming up. I mean, I know that COVID-19 is comp kind of complicated things, but if there's anything yeah. that you're working on that you want to share, just let us know. And how yeah. can people get in touch with you? Okay, all right. So yeah, so people can reach me on Instagram at, at Lady the Lady Tiffany, T-I-F-F-A-N-I-E. Um, I have uh, Twitter as well, Yara Productions. Y-A-H. Uh, Y-A-H. Um, uh, and so what we have coming up, so we, we primarily do Food Network shows, a lot of cooking shows. Um, and we have um, season two of Barbecue Brawl that we're trying to get off the ground. It was a show with Bobby and Michael Simon. Um, that's the show that we started shooting and then had to stop because of COVID. So hopefully you'll be able to see that on the air next year as soon as we can get back out and shoot. And then we have some good pilots and new shows that are coming out um, that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to see. But for Rock Shrimp Productions projects, you could check out Food Network. That's where most of our shows are airing and will be airing coming up. We also do um, Beat Bobby Flay. That's where we're currently editing in post. So those, thankfully, those episodes will keep coming out fresh for a while. Um, we have a lot of shows um, in the bank right now that we are editing and producing for, for them. Thank you, Tiffany. This was really, really good. No Thank problem. you. I, I feel like I talk too much. Thank you thanks. so much. No, no, that's the point. All right, we'll be in touch. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Black Film Space podcast. If you're interested in being part of our community and attending events, please visit us at blackfilmspace.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Film Space. Subscribe to our email list and podcast. All right, see you soon.